0: You're listening to Give Me The Fear, the Britflix podcast, Fright Fest 2023 preview series. My name is Stuart Wright, and usually I host this show, but for this genre talent filled build up to the Woodstock of gore, I'm keeping stump. When this intro is done, this is the last you're going to hear from me until I ask you to tell your friends all about it. The spoiler-free interviews are brief and across the entire series you will discover the kind of knowledge and experience about how to make horror films that they just don't teach you at film school. Are you ready for that? After looking back at the blood, sweat and tears that went into their creative successes I asked them one last question. If you could handpick one person to be in the audience alive or dead, famous or personal to you your fright first screening, who would it be and why? I think you're gonna love the answers to this question, this I certainly do. That's my introduction over with. Let's hear from the talent.
1: So I'm Tony Devlin. I am the writer and director of the Glen Armor Tips. <laughs> So the Glen Armagh Tapes is a found footage uh, horror thriller. Um, It's about four media students, uh, media studies students. They don't like their teachers. Their teachers don't like them because they're very working class and the teachers are very middle class. There's a whole class thing going on. And they decide, I know what we'll do. Um, They they overhear their teachers going to have an affair this weekend in, in a local forest in the Glens of Antrim. And they decide, we're going to follow these guys. We're going to get them on tape. We're going to get a sex tape. And uh, they'll think twice about how they treat us. However, as with all good horror films, when they get to the forest, um, everything goes awry. The idea for this movie started off back in 2018. We developed it for a while. Uh, Then COVID hit. I was on a course with NI Screen called The New Writer Focus Course. Um, And I was actually developing my next movie at the time. But at the end of that process, I think we got to the point where I realized that this movie is going to cost five, six million pounds to make. Um, And I screen offered me three hundred and fifty grand, which is a lot of money. But in film terms, it's not. And you get 14 days to shoot it. So we harked back to something that we were developing four years previous. We got on it and then we came up with the Glen Arma tapes. Uh, we started shooting uh, at the tail end of the second lockdown, which was March 2022. So we had COVID officers, officers, and everything on set. It was a bit of a nightmare, but it was all exterior. It was in forests at 4 a.m., um, where you know people weren't going going out. It was uh, uh, the actual forest that we shot in. Was it's used for stag parties and hen parties? You know, it's paintball and it's. Uh, off road driving and stuff, so no one was about, which, which was great. Tough shoot uh, in terms of the COVID, the social distancing thing. But as I say, hey, we were outside. Um, I guess the biggest obstacle that we had was, you know, it was night shoots, with limited money, with fourteen days to shoot this. Um, we tried the over the shoulder thing um, for the running sequences, and then my incredible DOP Jenny Atchison. We were all first-timers. I was a first-time feature director. It was her first feature as as DOP. She'd done a lot of shorts. Most of the HODs were all female. It was their first time on on a feature film. But we all just got the movie. We bought into it. We knew we didn't have a lot of money or a lot of time to shoot it. And she came along with this motorcycle helmet. Motorcycle helmet. And she put the aerial axe on top of the motorcycle helmet. She had a neck like B.A. Baracus by the end of the shoot because, you know, she's running around with this motorcycle helmet. She's our POV, so, you know, so I was treating her like an actor. So the actor playing her was behind her. I'm I'm giving her information via, you know, cans that we had going on. We had the system rigged up where I could talk to her inside the motorcycle helmet. So everywhere she ran, it looked as if it was it was our guys with headcams running through the forest at nighttime. I think that is the standout moment for me when she walked on set, because the first day, things weren't going to plan. I was in very Village looking at this, going, oh, we're not getting what I want, what I'd intended, what I thought would have happened with head cams. And then she came along with this rig, and it was just a phenomenal moment. And it'll go down in, in my filmmaking history uh, as the moment that kind of made this movie. And when you go see the movie, and you watch those action shots, you will, you know, you'll, it's almost like motion sickness, you know, when you're on a boat, you're running and somebody's wearing a head cam. It's not easy to watch, Um but it instills that whole sense of fear and the thriller aspect of being chased. And so phenomenal idea from our DOP. I guess the toughest thing in the edit was... That we you know we didn't have it's found footage you know how do we gel this together how do we cut it together we, we can't do cutaways to birds flying or a you know a lady bird crawling up a leaf or whatever it you know this is found footage this is tapes that we've got to make this look um like did this happen you know when when was Blair Witch late 90s you know over 25 years ago um back then they were able to create websites and uh you know we, nobody had phones facebook you didn't have easy access to google searches back then so we were unapologetic about it i i said to the, you know the producers and our team look we're going to be unapologetic about this we're, we're we're making a movie you know we're not putting it out there as anything else it, it it is falling into the found footage genre, but let's be unapologetic about every everything. It's enter it's entertainment at the end of the day. Um, and as long as we tick all the boxes in terms of thriller, horror, found footage, niche genre, then we're doing something right. Uh so in the edit, I guess the toughest thing was just deciding when we cut away that as opposed to cutaways, um what we do is we follow the narrative. We go, just go on that journey from A to B to C to D, right through to Z to the end of the movie. The luxury we had was that the movie is about filmmakers. Filmmakers are making the movie. They're all media, stu- uh, media studies students. So they're editing the movie together. Um, and it, it's, what, it's what those guys put together. So that was a kind of a luxury, kind of get out of jail clause. In terms of narrative and and how we put this together, and I remember somebody saying to me one day, "Get more coverage." And I'm saying, "Coverage of what?" This is one guy following his mate around with a camera. You know, we're only interested in the subject matter that's in front of us. You know, we're not we're not making uh, a normal film here. You know, with cutaways and, and coverage, we don't need coverage. We've got to keep the audience interested as long as they um have an affiliation with 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 what's in front of front of the camera here i.e. our our main character our protagonist if we if we uh, fall in love with him and her then we're we're on that good thing it's a great question um it's one that I guess all actors writers directors have thought about since they were very young and uh you know I, I could I could say you know Spielberg I could say I'd love to have Stephen King in the room but for me, and this is very cliched, it's like my Oscar speech. It would have to be my dad, um, my father. Um, my dad passed away when I was 19 years old. I was in second year of drama school in London. But it was it was kind of him from the very beginning telling me, you know, anytime I had any doubt about what I could and couldn't do, he was saying, you can do it. You know, driving me on to that. Um, he's the guy that stood outside the Belfast Education and Library Board every morning because they wouldn't give me money. They wouldn't they wouldn't fund private education like drama school. And he stood there every morning until they were so melted by this man standing at their door at 9 a.m. every morning saying, you got to pay for my son to go to drama school. We don't have the money to send him off. And, and I want them to have that opportunity um, until they capitulated and, and paid for drama school for me. And at the end of the day so you know 25 years after my dad passing away um i hope i've made him very proud and uh, i think he would uh he would love to be in the audience watching me, watching my debut feature yeah my dad
2: my name is jasper sharp i'm the co-director along with sarah appleton on the j horror virus mm-hmm. The J-Horror Virus is a documentary about the phenomena of J-horror, which we uh, posit as something very different from the broader span of just all Japanese horror. But uh, this particular subgenre of films uh, featuring long-haired ghosts manifesting themselves by various technological means, such as videotape or mobile phone, uh, which appeared around about the turn of the millennium. Um, our documentary attempts to go back to the very roots of this uh, subgenre by interviewing mainly the sort of practitioners and, and filmmakers uh, who made these films. Sarah had just finished uh, The Found Footage Phenomenon, uh, which played at the Fest a couple of years ago, and was looking for new projects. And I'd been writing about Japanese cinema for... Um, several decades now since the late 90s. So uh, both of us came at this. We both had an interest in this intersect. I mean, she's a horror fan and uh, grew up with J-horror and the remakes, whereas I'm a bit older, so I remember when The Ring came out uh, and the other J-horror films and looking at them and thinking, wow, these are pretty distinctively different from sort of Western horror. So really it was a case of... um, putting our heads together and and realizing we were in a unique situation where we could make this documentary because over the years I've made quite a few contacts in the Japanese film industry. So it was very easy to get hold of the the directors and to organize shoots in Japan and, and the, sort of fundamentals uh, fundamentals documentary making like that. With regards to shooting, Japan was actually closed up for most of our production period still due to the COVID lockdowns. So they weren't letting foreigners in. So actually a lot of the, the interviews, well, all of the interviews, were done remotely. Um, we had a, a team in Tokyo and we, we basically scripted the questions and, and gave them uh, to the various interviewees and uh, assembled the footage back in England. But... Uh, we did go over in March and we organised a sort of work-in-progress screening uh, with a lot of the interviewees there. And, and I think the most exciting thing there was coming face-to-face face with Sadako herself, the actress who played Sadako, uh, who, who, yes, will, talks a lot in the documentary about her her role as Sadako and, and women in Japan and, and what she brought to the role. And, and it was great meeting her face-to-face face, uh, because... Uh, you know, she's obviously clearly a very different woman from one uh, she plays on screen. I was surprised because I thought I knew a lot about the history of Japanese horror. And we interviewed Norio Tsuruta, who directed really where, where the roots came from in the scary true stories so straight to video series from the 90s. But he said, you have to interview this guy, Tellyoshi Ishii, who made this film that influenced us all, called Jaganrei, Psychic Vision, which is a 1988 found footage mockumentary um, about a, a, a pop singer who uh, is sort of cursed by this audio recording uh, <laughs> on one of her tapes. And then you see lots of photos in the background of ghosts standing around wherever she is. So this is basically the beginnings of J-horror as we know it. And and I wasn't aware of this film. It's a very obscure, straight-to-video film. Um, And off the back of that, we've we've been uh, liaising with the producers of that. We've got a new subtitled uh, copy, which we're planning to uh, screen at Sitges in Spain. As a writer, I'm used to starting with a blank page and filling it up with as much detail as possible. And in, in the written form, if you're writing a history of a genre, You can basically add footnotes, go off on tangents and and be very thorough. Uh, Sarah came from it from a totally different angle as an editor because you basically end up with like a wealth of material, like say 30 hours worth of, of footage, which you need to edit.
3: This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming... And his facility shines with Grainger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24 seven customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by Granger for the ones who get it done.
2: Down into a 90 minute format. So it's rather like rather than starting with a blank page, she's got like a big rock that she's chipping away and trying to make a sculpture out of. Um, so, the what I had initially envisaged would be a sort of more conventional history of J Horror actually ended up a lot more discuss, uh, discursive with the filmmakers themselves talking about their influences, their relationship to one another, um, where they were in the industry at the time. And I think what really comes across in, in the film is that this was a movement, a, a close knit community, not a group of disparate filmmakers, but people that were looking at each other's films, writing publicly about each other's films and influenced by each other's films. So whereas Norio Tsuruta, when he pitched this video series, Scary True Stories, to to the video producer, he he looked at filmmakers around him or friends of his shared similar filmmaking philosophies and and recruited them to, to direct um, same with the TV series Wanted School so a lot of the figures we know like Hideo Nakata and Kiyoshi Kurosawa were basically fledgling filmmakers got their, their foot up from people like Norio Saruta. Um, and it's very interesting looking at someone like Kiyoshi Kurosawa talking about Saruta's really early work and goes wow that was the most terrifying thing I've ever seen and I spent my entire career trying to better it <laughs> This is a very difficult question because, obviously, as a director of a documentary, if you're not interested in the subject, you possibly are not going to appreciate it. But um, for me, it would be the late, great film critic Donald Ritchie, who was the guy that introduced Japanese cinema to the West Uh, in the 1950s. He wrote the first ever books on on Japanese cinema. Uh, When I lived in Tokyo uh, in the 2000s, he was still living there, he was in his 70s at the time, and I got to know him quite well. Um, but I remember him reviewing the Midnight Eye Guides to Japanese Cinema book, which I wrote with Tom Mez, and he said this was like a celebration of everything that was hip and cool and didn't really capture what the, the beauty of some of Japanese cinema that was coming out at the time. And so he was very much uh, down on genre movements, and, and I... Well, i subsequently got to know him better and he said some very nice things about my book on pink cinema behind the pink curtain which which really surprised me because i do take a few digs at him in, in, as a sort of fuddy-duddy old conservative but i think he would appreciate firstly that these films have had a longevity uh, that probably he wouldn't have imagined at the time but the the way that our sort of um, documentary sort of approaches this you know, as, as we're mediating between Japanese culture and the West, we're trying to look at the social context and the technological context in which they emerged, and we're doing it through the voices primarily of the, of the filmmakers, with with as few sort of Western critical voices as we could get away with. The other key figure at the moment is the late Dennis Meikle, who is uh, Sarah's father, and he wrote in the. Uh, in 2005, he wrote a book for um, Titan, The Ring Companion. And for me at the time, I remember reading it, and it was the best book on J-horror that had come out. It was. It didn't go with too many sort of cultural theorising or anything. It looked at the films themselves and charted the history. Um, and obviously through the process of writing this book, that's what, how Sarah became introduced to a lot of these films. So I think it would be, it's a shame he passed away last year, but uh, I wish he could have seen the, the uh, finished documentary. I know from knowing him personally that he would have been very critical about it because he was quite critical about things. But at the same time, it's great that we made it.
3: My name is Mike Hurst, and I am the writer, the director, the producer, unfortunately the financier, and uh, all-round uh, jack-of-all-trades on a film called Transmission. So we made that for the last uh, four years. And um, now we're premiering at Fight Fest in
1: 2023.
3: Yeah, Transmission is the world's first channel surfing horror movie. So it all takes place on a TV screen. Essentially, it's like one of those screen life films. Instead of, instead of a computer screen, it's a TV screen. And what you're doing throughout the movie is channel surfing and flipping between different channels and realizing that in actual fact you're not changing story. When you change channel, you're just seeing a different aspect of the same story, and all the four channels are actually combining to make one narrative. Kind of weird. It hasn't been done before. There may be a reason for that. We're going to find out. Uh, the, The really weird thing about transmission is I have been on a quest for about 15 years to do a movie in this particular format. So I had an idea. You know how when you're reading film review books and they have little capsule reviews of the movies and they give it, one out of four stars or whatever. I read a review of a movie that was a bad movie. I can't remember the movie, but the reviewer said the, the, the story is so disjointed that every time you change scenes, it's as if you've changed channel. And it was to, it was to slag off this movie. But I read that sentence and thought, I want to do that. That's a really good idea for a movie. What a great idea for a format, as if, you know, to change channel, but actually find you haven't changed story. So I thought of that 15 years ago. And first, I, read a, I wrote a script called Parasite, which was a kind of riff on um, the stuff by Larry Cohen. And it was about this food stuff that had come out in the ad, the commercials for the app for the food stuff while this disease spreads. And I actually, I actually met Larry Cohen at a screening and told him all about it and I had a nice chat with him. But that one didn't go anywhere because everyone was like, you know, channel surfing, fuck off, it's not going to work. And, but I stayed stubborn with the whole process of doing this format idea. So I wrote another script, and this one was an alien invasion movie. And so it was very much a TV take on the old Orson Welles radio broadcast. Um, and so I did a TV version of that as if you're changing channels as, as the aliens were landing. And I actually managed to option that to 20th Century Fox. So I got a big, you know, not a big studio deal, but a small studio deal. And, um, and I was in development for that for a year. Uh, but it turns out, of course, as, as people know, the 20th Century Fox developed a hell of a lot of stuff they're never going to make. And we, we fell between the cracks and we weren't going to get made by them. And they dropped it. They dropped the movie after a year of me working on it, uh, essentially for free. So thank you very much, 20th century Fox. So I decided that I was going to stay stubborn. And what I thought to myself is, you know what? No one's ever going to get this. I can't get this made by producers, uh, production companies. Cause I've made a bunch of movies like House of the Dead 2 and Pumpkinhead 4 and Room 6 and Paradox. And they're all like decent movies, but they're, they're saleable to producers, you know, and distributors. They make perfect sense. They're just B movies, you know. They they know what. There's nothing uh, cutting edge about them. And what I realize is, I have a rolodex full of. That's how old I am. I have a rolodex, um, producers and distribution companies that wouldn't go for this because this is going to be way too outside their their remit. You know, they're too 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 strange for them. So I realized I'm not going to get funding for this movie. So I'm going to have to self-finance this movie. There's no one no one's going to give me permission in inverted commas to make this movie. So I thought I'm going to write a new version of this format idea, totally start from scratch. And I came up with the story of transmission, which I think is the best one of the three that I wrote because it's all about a TV broadcast. It's a TV broadcast movie, but it's about a TV broadcast that shouldn't be happening and is dangerous. And therefore I think it's the most, uh, you know, germane to the whole, concept i had and the tightest one i had so i decided i was not going to i didn't try and get transmission finance i didn't send it to my normal roster of producers i just opened my uh, checkbook and said we're doing this movie and uh, that's that's proven to be the sort of uh, lucky break that the project had it was 15 years of me trying to make a movie where your channel surfing on tv <laughs> The shoot was lots of little bits, as you can imagine, because we did we did all the TV channels separately, obviously. So it was somewhat like an anthology movie. But we had, you know, we did the sci-fi movie on the spaceship, and we did the TV news broadcast, all the police cars, and the extras, and the cops, and stuff. And they were all bigger shoots. But then after that, there were loads of little crumbs I had to pick up myself and do on my own. And so a lot of the shooting of the little bits was done with just me and a camera, nobody else around. So, for instance, the, um, the old man that stood on the train tracks and gets hit by the train, that's me in an old man's wig with the camera on a tripod, nobody else around. And, of course, I have to go and stand on the train tracks and hold my arms out as if I'm going to get hit by a train, at which point some neighbor calls the police, obviously, and the cops turn up. And I have to explain to two very bemused cops how I'm going to uh, use After Effects to marry the image of me on the train tracks with the train going through and supposedly killing me. But they were super nice about the whole thing and uh, let me carry on doing it, even though I was trespassing on the tracks at the time. There were loads of little shoots like that. There was another time I came home, or my wife came home, and found me basically torturing my 14-year-old son by tying him up, putting him in a mask, and covering the floor with candles so he couldn't move. Um, She was not very amused about that. There were so many times where I just literally thought of an idea for a tiny little snippet to do with the... um, VHS collection of the, of the villain and stuff. And I thought, oh, I'll just go and do that. And then I just went and did it on my own. Zero crew, zero anyone helping me, just me on my little camera and tripod. And uh, the, those those shoots, those little silly little pieces turned into the sort of funniest, funniest stories. Oh, everything. Uh, the, the film changed shape uh, dramatically in the edit because it turns out the most crucial creative decisions are about when you change channel and most importantly narratively when you reveal the connections between the different channels and that all changed massively like i wrote the entire screenplay out it's a not, you know 80 page script uh, you know in final draft but then um I, and this is a, a sort of filmmaking tip i give people for the found footage aspects of the film i.e. the news reports and uh, some of the documentary stuff I told the actors, do not learn the script. Do not look at the lines. Literally make up something that's a bit like this. I would tell them the uh, the narrative aspect, of what we were going for, and the sort of story nugget I needed to get in there. And then I would let them uh, riff on that. So all of Vernon Wells's dialogue, for instance, like, that's not scripted, because I wanted to seem like he was coming up with it in the spur of the moment. So I do find when you do found footage, if you try and hold people to screenplays, then it comes out sounding forced because they haven't thought of that phrase themselves and they're just literally regurgitating the screenplay and that's when you get that kind of slightly fake quality to the voice. So even though I wrote the screenplay out, the found footage aspects or the found footage channels were not done according to the script at all and uh, I I just find that was a better way of doing that. It would be Roger Corman, who the film is dedicated to, because uh, he's a legend. Uh, I really like him as a person and as, uh, you know, a filmmaker. And also he kind of financed this movie without knowing it because he hired me to write a screenplay for a movie called Death Game 2084. And I wrote that screenplay for him and we had lots of great meetings about it and stuff. But I used all the money he paid me to make Transmission. So Roger Corman is accidentally the executive producer of Transmission. And also the space movie, the, 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 the horror movie in the movie, is very much based on Galaxy of Terror, and the 80s comedy aspect of the movie, the, the channel that's playing an 80s comedy, is very much based on screwballs. So Roger Corman inspired sort of, the look of the film, he financed the movie accidentally, and he was a, you know, a part of the inspiration for making it.
0: If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with at least one friend. Put a link out on social media, Rate and review it for your preferred podcast platform. Put an ad in the loop. the town crier. Whisper in the ear of the town gossip. You get the picture. It all helps bring new people into the Britflix podcast fold. Thank you.